This is Victoria, producer for The Felon File, a podcast on law enforcement history, issues, and incidents in the Appalachian Mountains of the United States and beyond. Listen to in 39 countries around the world. Scott Lunsford hosts The Felon File. Scott is a retired American police sergeant. Background and intro music through purpleplanet.com. Welcome back to another episode of The Felon File. I'm your host, Scott Lunsford, as our producer just explained. And we look at crime and punishment stories that have occurred in the Appalachian Mountains and beyond there that are related to crime and punishment, law enforcement, the good guys, the bad guys, and so on. And we refer to those as shade of blue stories. Well, today we've got a shade of blue story for you. It's a homicide, unfortunately. But it's a murder that occurred, or multiple murders that occurred in 1950. Now, death by homicide per 1,000 per 100,000 residents, population-wise in the United States from 1950 to 2018 has, of course, increased. In 1950, you were looking at five incidents per 100,000. In 1960, those numbers went down a percentage point, but from then on, murders have increased to doubling in the 1980s what they were in the 1950s. Numbers are cold, though, Personally, by themselves, in the big picture, they don't mean too much. It's when it gets personal. When violence happens to you or people you care about, it suddenly becomes an issue. News media has desensitized us to a lot of the tragedies that have happened. Humans have always been notorious for believing that bad things happen to other people. In 1950, a local man brought that kind of violence to Wahala, South Carolina and a family that lived there. These events ended up rippling all the way from Wahala, South Carolina to Western North Carolina. Curtis Shedd, a World War II veteran, met Mr. John Boiter at a post-World War II veterans training school that was being run near Wahala, South Carolina. The government set up several of those. Several of the universities and colleges also set up these type of training schools and training centers to help returning veterans from the war uh, learn a trade or learn something new or just make themselves a better person. Now, after this meeting at this class, the two men, Curtis Shedd and John Boiter, became really good friends. Boiter likely didn't know much about Shedd's background other than their shared experiences in the war and the times they were at training school together. But, as it ends up, Shedd was recently released from his second prison term for robbery when he enrolled in the school. On August 3, 1950, Shedd and Boiter rode around Walhalla in Shedd's car 
just hanging out together. Shed had just recently redone the car and he was proud of it and they were out for a joyride. Later that afternoon, Shed returned to the Boiter home by himself and when he came back, told the family there that he had been sent by Boiter home to pick up the two girls, Johnny May, age 14, and Joe Ann, age 8, to join their dad for a car ride into the mountains. Shed had an explanation for everything. He said they would also be going to see the circus that had set up across the state line in Clayton, Georgia. This location being in the Three Corners area, the boundaries of North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia all meet about 30 miles from north of Wahala. The girls and their mother went with Shed, thinking they would meet up with their father and husband near the Georgia Circus event. Soon after Shed picked up the girls, a man in Georgia, about eight miles outside of Highlands, North Carolina, found the girl's father dead, his body in the woods next to the post office there. The woods beside the roads leading to Wahala. Investigators responded and found that the father had been beaten and shot with a shotgun. Shed was known to own a stockless shotgun, and that morning it was reported that he had been test-firing the weapon several times before he went and picked up Boiter. The investigation and interviews with other family members found that Boiter and his family had last been seen together where they had had left with Shed in his car. Shed was in the training class that he had been taking with Boiter when the police arrived. He was taken from the classroom straight to the police station. And of course, he nervously denied knowing anything about an incident or driving the family anywhere. But mom had resurfaced. And she put the, all of them together. Shed had a challenging time explaining the events of the day. His story changed several times and continued to change even later in court. A newspaper article of the day reported that under a grueling interrogation, he eventually admitted he raped and strangled the girls. And that he lured their father away for a test drive in his newly refurbished car with that intention. Shed killed him, then went back to Walhalla and picked up the daughters. The bodies were discovered where he had taken them across the state line into North Carolina near Highlands. Shedd even went with detectives later to the crime scene and explained what had happened, how it occurred, and how he was involved. Local historian and writer T.W. Reynolds interviewed people involved with the case and published that in his book, Born of the Mountains, that was published in 1964. He interviewed locals and captured stories of the Highlands area in his books, and he recorded one of Shedd's many varied accounts of what happened. One that the girls were killed about five miles outside of Highlands, he said, on Highway 106 leading to Dillard, the town dump site in the 1950s and 60s. Reynolds wrote that the girls were killed right where the strawberries grow. Their bodies were left there for at least 10 days until Shedd agreed to bring law enforcement to the crime scene. After word got around that Shedd had been arrested, 
a crowd of 4,000 gathered outside the Wahala jail, some calling for blood, of course. The county sheriff requested and received assistance from the governor. The governor sent 50 South Carolina National Guardsmen to help keep the peace. The guardsmen took up a position and surrounded the jail, acting as a barrier between the building and the mob. Media sources in the crowd reported to local newspapers that the sheriff confronted this group that had encompassed his jail. They printed the local sheriff told the crowd to go home and to go home and let law and order take its course. The sheriff told the mob to pray and read your Bibles and return if you think that it's God's way. And of course, everyone left and nobody did return. After negotiating jurisdiction with South Carolina, North Carolina, and Georgia, Shedd was transferred to a jail in Georgia where he was charged with John Boyder's murder. The jurisdictions each reviewed and shared their evidence and information. It was really determined that North Carolina had the best case for a conviction and a death sentence. As the crimes were all connected, a lot of the evidence overlapped from one state to another and all could be used in the trial in North Carolina. It was decided to try Shedd first for the deaths of the two girls in Macon County, North Carolina. That trial was held in Franklin. To avoid the local publicity and angry emotions that followed the murders of the two children, a jury was selected and brought in from out of county, in Jackson County, as a matter of fact, to hear the case. Woody Wilson, who was a Georgia State Bureau of Investigation Agents, GBI, worked on the investigation when the father's body was found in Georgia. At the Macon County trial, he testified that Shedd went with officers to the site near the Highlands where he had dumped the bodies, demonstrating how he had killed the oldest girl. The agent also testified that Shedd told several different stories and that they changed over time on a regular basis. The mother, wife of the dead man and the mother of the two girls, she testified that she and her husband thought Shedd was taking their family to the circus. Instead, he had attacked her and then disappeared with her daughters. Curtis Shedd was also married. His wife, looking tiny and frail in the newspaper stories, sat beside him at this trial and cried throughout most of the proceedings. Shedd did not testify, and the only defense presented on his behalf hinted at a mental illness. In his closing statement and closing argument, Shedd's defense attorney said, quote, Look at him, sitting there chewing gum like he was at a Sunday picnic. Does he look like he is in his right mind? Well, the prosecutor argued that Shedd had committed these, what he referred to as damnable crimes, and called for the defense's attempts to claim the jury should, con should consider Shedd's mental condition as nothing but novel injections of insanity. In his closing statement, the DA said, He is either the most foolish or the smartest man I have ever met. On December 14, 1950, the jury deliberated for only an hour and convicted Shedd with no recommendation of mercy of any type, which meant, of course, a death sentence. After the trial, Shedd, of course, changed his story about what happened. 
After being convicted, it's unclear really why he would continue to change his story, but he did. Shedd admitted he had killed John Voiter and later refused to accept he had killed the girls. In Shedd's ever-changing stories and saga, he claimed that Voiter had killed his daughters. Shedd also claimed the father was the person who sexually assaulted the girls. At one point and another, they each attacked one of the girls, that this was the reason for the whole trip. If so, why did Shedd kill the dad? Well, Shedd claimed after the assaults and deaths of the two children, John had told him that he was going to go to Mexico. Shedd killed him so the father would not confess or inform others of Shedd's involvement, he said. No one who knew John Boiter, though, believed this. It was said that he loved his children and could harm them in no other way. He also had no other criminal record. The younger brother of the two girls was not allowed to go with them to the alleged circus event. He survived to be seen in media images at the courthouse during the trial. The girl's mother at one point was arrested during the investigation and held under suspicion of involvement based on one of the stories Shedd told investigators, that the mother would run off with Shedd and the children and the husband needed to be eliminated. Another story he told was that the mother and father were going to run off together to Mexico and start a new life together, and they didn't want to be held back by their children. She was released after Shed's stories started to multiply. After the hour-long deliberation and verdict, according to the Silva Herald and Rulelite newspaper, several jurors were interviewed and granted interviews. When asked why they deliberated so long, I don't know about that, it was an hour, a jury stated they were meditating to make sure they were doing the right thing. Shedd's only hope at this point was Governor Scott. The governor of North Carolina refused to stay the execution, though, and it was scheduled for Good Friday, March 23, 1951. Shedd was executed in the gas chamber of North Carolina's Central Prison. It was basically a two-for-one deal. Shedd shared the death limelight with another man, both men at the same time in the small gas chamber. I guess it was cheaper that way. The other men had sexually assaulted and killed his own sister-in-law. It was reported that both men had been baptized the day before their executions. A news report said Shedd took his seat and eyed his guard sullenly, moments before the cyanide pellets dropped in the acid. Death came to the murder of children in under 10 minutes. Now, in the book that T.W. Reynolds wrote, he noted that the little girl's family didn't have money for a headstone for their graves. Yet because Curtis Shedd had served in the military, his grave at the Long Creek Baptist Church graveyard in South Carolina has a military marker stone. The stone shares his rank, how and where he served during World War II, but there is no mention of the evil in the man and that special place in hell Shed, no doubt, resides in. Scott, we still have time on the studio login. Why don't you add the shade of blue story on the family fight in 1937? The one you were telling me about earlier. The argument and fight that took place on the city streets of Asheville, North Carolina. 
the man was charged with murder. He admitted to the felony killing but was acquitted. All right. Welcome back to another Shade of Blue story here on The Felon File. Billboard magazine in the United States published its first music hit parade. Rest in peace, Mr. Casey Kaysen. There was a major heat wave that sent temperatures to record highs in thousands of the United States. Citizens ended up dying and passing away because of the heat. Another piece of heat that came out was Margaret Mitchell's epic historical romance, Gone with the Wind. It is published at that time. My wife's favorite movie and novel, the 1937 The Lost Colony, a historical drama, is performed for the first time in an outdoor theater where it was set, Roanoke Island, North Carolina. In other parts of the world, the Ponce Massacre, police acting under orders from the governor of Puerto Rico, opened fire on demonstrators protesting the arrest of the Nationalist uh, Party leader. 17 people were killed and over 200 were injured. William H. Hastie became the first African-American appointed to a federal judgeship in the United States. Now looking a little bit closer to home, Helen Clevenger, an American college student from New York University, was murdered in Asheville, North Carolina on July 16, 1936. She was in Asheville visiting her uncle, a professor at North Carolina State College, and in the early morning hours of July 16th, she was beaten and fatally shot in her room at the Battery Park Hotel. Uh, the building still stands today, part of uh, several tours for the downtown Asheville area. The local police interviewed many witnesses and possible suspects, including the night watchman and a well-known violinist who was staying at the hotel at the time, before they finally arrested a hotel bellhop, a 22-year-old Martin Moore, lived on Hill Street. Martin later claimed that he was beaten and starved by detectives into giving a written confession, which he was really innocent. And it's interesting that it was a written confession because Moore was a mentally challenged individual and could not write. He was executed in the gas chamber in Raleigh, North Carolina on December 11, 1936. Martin Moore was an African-American young man. The prejudice of the time was very evident in the media of the day that wrote the stories. Uh, the focus ended up being mainly on Moore's race and other aspects of his physical appearance than the physical evidence of the crime. Many of the Western North Carolina shooting murders in this time frame from 36 to 1937 revolved around family issues. For example, Sam Burton was an operator of a downtown produce market. He and his son, Earl and Charlie, uh, 28 and 34 years of old, were shot and killed at the store on a Sunday night in downtown Asheville on Lexington Avenue. Police Chief Charles Derman told the newspapers of the day that Herman Burton, 48, brother and uncle of the of two of the victims had committed the homicides. He later surrendered to a state highway patrolman who just happened to be passing the scene. He flagged the trooper down as he went by and gave him the gun and confessed. He was booked on a murder charge. 
Uh, Chief of Police Derman said that the triple killing followed a family argument among the father and his sons and his the father's brother and another brother by the name of John Burton. The third brother, according to Chief Derman, fled after the shooting and had not been apprehended or seen since the time of the interview and the confession. The chief of police quoted the highway patrolman as saying that the prisoner told him on his way to jail, quote, I shot my two nephews because they were coming on me with an axe, and I shot my brother by accident. I'm real sorry about him. Interesting. Ah. Chief Derman said the widow of Burton, a witness to the triple homicide, signed statements that the two boys uh, became involved in an argument with their father, who grabbed up a hand axe and chased Earl and Charlie from the business. Herman Burton, according to the widow, in her statement, she said, had taken a pistol from his brother's hand and then opened fire on the three men as they were running away. The men were killed on the sidewalk just outside the produce store which the two sons worked at with their father. Chief Derman said each of the boys were shot just one time apiece. When he surrendered, the uncle gave the state highway patrolman a 45 caliber revolver which contained five shells and three of the shells had been shot. He was three for three. That's sad. The shooting and the rest were not the only newsworthy item in this drama. The court case itself was uh, pretty much a media show. The coroner's jury, after hearing the testimony of one witness, returned a verdict that Sam Burton, 60, and his two sons, Charlie and Earl, had died of gunshot wounds inflicted at the hands of Herman Burton, the boy's uncle and brother to Sam. The coroner's jury ordered Herman held for grand jury. A Buckham County grand jury returned three true bills indicting Herman for the murders. And the coroner's jury also recommend that when he's found, John Burton, the missing third son, be held for grand jury investigation and interrogation. While in jail, the uncle, Herman Burton, issued a statement saying he killed his two nephews in self-defense and he hadn't meant to kill his brother and was unaware at the time that he had shot him. When the cases ended up going to court, the charges against Herman Burton were dismissed. In le pro se qui, which is Latin for we shall no longer prosecute, a declaration made to the judge by the prosecutor in the criminal case. A jury had originally found him not guilty in one shooting, while a mistrial was ordered in the other two. After a closer review, the state closed the case out with no verdicts for the uncle and the surviving nephew. Well, that's our Shade of Blue story for this week. Be sure to come back in about two weeks for another one. And be sure to check out felonfile.com or scottlunsfordauthor.com where you can find information on my books and at both sites you can pick up some of the stuff we have out there that selling that helps us pay for criminal history records and other things we get from different locations that charge us for printing and copying. You can pick up a felon file t-shirt or a felon file coffee mug 
And of course, we all know coffee tastes better in a felon file coffee mug. Well, in the meantime, though, in the coming weeks, if you've got the opportunity, help somebody out. Be nice to somebody. Do a good thing. Do a good deed. It's really what we need to be doing. And more people on this planet need to be doing that. And if we all did, I guarantee the world would be a better place. So in the meantime, be safe and be secure. And we'll talk to you guys later. I'm going to turn it back over to you, Victoria. You got the control board again. Bye, y'all. This has been The Felon File, a discussion on law enforcement, history, issues, and incidents in the Appalachian Mountains and other parts of the world. For more information, you can go to felonfile.com or scottlunsfordauthor.com. Here you can find links to Scott and Num books and other information. You can also email us at felonfile at gmail.com. There are also t-shirts and mugs available. You can also buy us a cup of coffee. Or help purchase some of the research material and expenses it takes to do felon file. Click on the coffee image on the web page to do so. This is Victoria your producer thank you for listening. Have a good one.